X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Tuesday, June 1st. Today, back in the day, in 1980, Cable News Network was launched. On June 1st, 1980, at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, founder Ted Turner introduced the first broadcast, a newscast read by husband and wife news team David Walker and Lois Hart. Since its inception, the network has grown to 42 bureaus, over 900 local affiliate stations, and many regional and foreign language stations across the world. CNN became a major player in the TV news world during its coverage of the Gulf War. The network was the first cable news channel to break the news of the 9-11 attacks. During the Trump administration, CNN was a favorite target of the then-president, who often called the network fake news. To this day, CNN remains one of the most watched channels for cable news. And today, back in the day in 2008, a fire at Universal Studios destroyed a whole backlot of archived film. A three-alarm fire broke out on the Universal backlot after a worker used a blowtorch to warm asphalt shingles and left them unattended. Fire took over 12 hours to fight and it destroyed the King Kong encounter attraction. Executives at Universal told reporters that 40 to 50,000 archived digital film copies were destroyed, but stated that, quote, nothing irreplaceable was lost. It wasn't until 2019, after New York Times expose, that it was revealed that a lot more was destroyed than Universal initially admitted to. A huge archive containing analog master tapes of Universal Music Group artists was destroyed forever. Estimates put the lost albums anywhere from 118,000 to 175,000. UMG claims that the New York Times report was inaccurate, and as of February 2020, says that master tapes from about 19 artists were damaged. And today, back in the day in 1905, the Lewis and Clark Centennial Exposition opens. Held in celebration of the centennial of the Lewis and Clark Expedition, the expo was a massive factor in Portland's growth at the turn of the century. The fair lasted for four months and brought in over 2.5 million visitors. The expo was held largely at Guilds Lake, which is now used for industrial purposes. Not much remains today of the expo, except for some buildings and many of the half-million pink hybrid tea rose bushes planted all over Portland. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Chris May from Street Roots on House Bill 2605. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. Oregon legislative staff became the first in the country to unionize. On Friday, a 75 to 31 vote officially made legislative aides a part of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 89. Staffers have been pushing for unionization for years. This change gives staffers a more meaningful say in the workplace and the ability to collectively bargain on contracts. Some lawmakers have worried that a staffer union would represent a conflict of interest. But the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers doesn't take an active role in state politics through donations or lobbying. Other lawmakers have been opposed to unionization efforts, questioning just how a union for legislative aides would work. But 29 Democrats banded together to craft a bill that would make unionization for legislative staffers easier. 
It clarifies exactly who would bargain with the union now that it's officially established. The bill passed 16 to 11 in the Senate back in April and is now waiting in the House Rules Committee. On Friday, House Speaker Tina Kotek and Senate President Peter Courtney announced their support of the union in a joint statement. Part of the statement said, quote, The people's work could not be done without them. We respect their decision, hear their voices, and look forward to bargaining in good faith with their new union. And now your daily dose of data. 52% of Oregonians have received at least one vaccination dose, while 42% are fully vaccinated. In Multnomah County, 58% of residents have received at least one dose. Vaccination rates are much lower in counties like Umatilla and Malheur, which both sit around 27%. Still, statewide, the rate of new COVID cases is declining. Portland Business Alliance violated city lobbying rules 25 times last year. Portland Business Alliance, which represents downtown's wealthiest business owners, is one of the most influential groups in the city. In the last year and a half, it has contacted city officials far more than any other special interest group. The PBA most frequently reported contact with senior advisor to the mayor, Sam Adams, who has extensive ties to the business community. Last Thursday, Portland City Auditor Mary Hull Caballero found that the Portland Business Alliance failed to report 25 instances that it lobbied city officials for funding, action, or access. Her findings are the results of an April investigation. The PBA contested the investigation's findings by claiming that their actions didn't really count as lobbying. But last Thursday, Hull Caballero disagreed, upholding her previous decision. The PBA is claiming that it is being unfairly targeted. In a statement, the PBA said, quote, Today's decision clearly establishes new definitions and purpose of lobbying that is not consistent with a plain reading of city code and is being applied to the Portland Business Alliance alone. Hull Caballero insists that in the future, the PBA must be more transparent about their activities. In the meantime, the city auditor's office has charged the PBA with a $450 find. Governor Brown signed a bill to increase electric vehicle usage and infrastructure. House Bill 2165 makes market tweaks that will make electric vehicles more accessible to Oregonians. First, it extends Oregon's electric vehicle rebate program, which gives customers cash back when they buy an electric car. The bill would also raise around $4.5 million for utilities like PGE and Pacific Core to invest in new electric vehicle infrastructure. The House Energy and Environment Committee passed HB 2165 unanimously in March. Governor Brown signed the bill into being last Wednesday. In a statement, Governor Brown said, quote, from commercial trucks to personal cars, the future of transportation in this country is electric. With the passage of HB 2165, these next-generation vehicles can become more accessible to all income levels and communities. A new report says Oregon's communities of color face water quality inequities. The Oregon Water Futures Project interviewed over 100 individuals from eight different Oregon counties for the project. It focused primarily on people of color, migrants, and rural Oregonians. The report found that aging infrastructure, water scarcity due to climate change, and high costs of drinking water all put extra stress on marginalized communities. These issues are systemic and long-lasting. 
For instance, during the 2018 algae bloom in the Detroit Lake Reservoir, Latino communities were some of the last to receive vital information and assistance due to language barriers. Another example is the Warm Springs Reservation, which has had a shortage of potable water for years. The Oregon Water Futures Report also highlights a need for culturally specific knowledge when policy decisions about water are being made. Next, Oregon Water Futures will expand their research and community outreach work on state policy engagement. And finally, some good news. The Portland Opera and the Oregon Ballet Theater will return to the stage next month. Fans of fine art rejoice because the opera and ballet are back. Both the Portland Opera and the Oregon Ballet Theater will be performing for live audiences again starting in June. But this time, there's a bit of a twist. All performances will take place outside at OMSI. Performances will run from June 5th to June 27th. The Portland Opera will be performing Frida, a show about the life of Frida Kahlo. And the Oregon Ballet Theater will be debuting two new shows, Koros and Sculpted Clouds. More information can be found on the organization's websites. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Next up, Chris May from Street Roots speaks with Julia Oppenheimer about HB 2605, which aims to help coastal communities prepare for the tsunamis that will most likely accompany the big one. When the big Cascadia earthquake hits, coastal Oregon will face another major threat, tsunamis. Back in 2019, lawmakers passed a bill allowing essential buildings like schools and hospitals to be built in high-risk areas. Now, lawmakers are looking to rectify that decision. But in his investigating reporting, Chris May found worrying evidence of an anti-science deregulatory approach to tsunami policy. Here to tell us more is Chris May himself. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. So this piece stars a few different state agencies and politicians. Can you give us a brief overview of the key players? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of moving parts to this, but one one key group is the uh, Coastal Caucus, which is a um, bipartisan group of state lawmakers, uh, senators, and state representatives uh, who represent uh, coastal districts in Oregon. Um, and in addition to that, you also have a uh, state agency uh, called the Department of Geology and Mineral Industries, um, and they are basically a group of scientists with the responsibility of regulating the mining industry across Oregon, um, as well as conducting uh, scientific research um, that's used uh, for a variety of, of purposes, um, emergency planning, um, uh, commercial industry, um, and also uh, for helping local communities decide uh, what their rules about land use are going to be. Um, and then the last group is is the Oregon Seismic Safety Policy Advisory Commission, which is a mouthful. So <laughs> it's, al it's also known as the Earthquake Commission. And this is basically an independent group of experts that was created following a major earthquake in California um, in 1989. And at that point, Oregon decided, well, maybe we should have some people to uh, help our leaders figure out how we can sort of prepare and deal with these issues in our own state. Um, so those are sort of the three main groups uh, that we're talking about here. Okay. So what has the relationship between the Coastal Caucus and the Department of Geology and Mineral Industries been like in the past? 
Yeah, it's definitely been uh, an evolution as far as the relationship between between those entities goes. Um, uh, you know, the the fact of the matter is, many coastal communities were built and have been developed um, without any modern understanding of what the sort of geologic reality is of the state. Um, and so, as the Dogami sort of um, learned more about, you know, the big one and other uh, natural hazards that those communities are exposed to, um, some of those realities obviously come with with a price tag if you want to do anything about it. Um, and that has created some tension um, with lawmakers who represent those districts um, and don't want to scare away potential investment. Um, so there's definitely been some tension. Um, but one interesting that's happened recently is um, Governor Kate Brown essentially uh, proposed that the agency be abolished. Um, and when that happened, these coastal lawmakers essentially came to the rescue and said, hey, you know, what's going on? We need to uh, preserve the funding uh, for this agency that does incredibly important work. So that that raised a few eyebrows. So what is the Coastal Caucus trying to accomplish with what? Tell, tell us about House Bill 2605. Sure. So House Bill 2605 is actually the second attempt to essentially mandate uh, improved construction standards um, for critical buildings like uh, hospitals, uh, police stations, uh, fire stations that would be built in areas that are vulnerable to uh, major earthquakes and tsunamis uh, along the coast. So two years ago, um, there was there was previously a ban that made it essentially, you know, impossible with, with some restrictions, but basically it said don't build hospitals and, and schools um, in an area that we know is going to get clobbered mm. uh, by a tsunami in the future. And so that ban was overturned. Um, and at that point, people realized, well, we don't have any, any standards for these buildings if people actually want to build them um, in these places. And so this is an attempt to introduce uh, sort of heightened standards uh, for critical or hazardous facilities um, that would be or could be constructed um, in these vulnerable areas. So isn't requiring those kind of structures, hospitals, uh, fire stations, schools, to, to have a little more resilience in a tsunami zone a good thing? Is there, what's the problem? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think most people who are in a tsunami zone or would be building something in a tsunami zone would probably want it to be as strong as possible. I think most people will agree with that. Um, one thing that I found interesting is that when it comes to how these buildings are designed, um, there are no requirements that the, the building continue to function um, in its original capacity. For example, mm-hmm. so if you if you build a, cost, a hospital in a tsunami zone, um, there are increased standards that make the building less likely to collapse. For instance, um, but it's it's no guarantee that you can still you know admit patients in that hospital, or um, it's kind of it depends on um, how high the wave is uh, as far as you know are those floors even going to be usable um, in the future? You know how much how much use is that building going to be going forward? Um, after the tsunami sort of comes through. Um, so that's that's one question that, you know, some experts on the Seismic Commission had and also, um, you know, other critics of development in these areas uh, point out as well. So it's they're definitely stronger than something without any additional requirements, 
Um, but it also it also raises some questions as well. Mm. So you call House Bill 2605 delayed payback for a deal that began over two years ago. Uh, what happened with that? Yeah, well, you know, it was sort of as conversations around this bill have been progressing in Salem, um, two of the key selling points uh, for the legislation offered by the, the sponsors of the bill were, you know, basically there's broad bipartisan uh, support uh, for, for these measures. Um, and also uh, states across the, the West Coast um, have already adopted very similar standards. Um, so, you know, basically this is not controversial at all. Um, and so I, I looked into that a little bit. And what I found was that the legislation preceding this this bill, uh, which overturned those those sort of bans in these in these vulnerable regions, um, that that was a, maybe a little more controversial controversial than it originally appeared. Um, and what you have is is a situation where um, scientists and and sort of seismic hazard hazard experts. Um, seem to be going against their better judgment uh, on public safety issues uh, because of, of political pressure. Mm. Um, and so one area where you see that happening is in these meetings of the uh, Earthquake Commission um, and these sort of experts on seismic issues kind of debating um, about what to do because many of them think the best option is to um, do whatever it takes and sort of move these schools and hospitals um, and other essential facilities basically outside of the zone that's been identified um, as as uh, susceptible to tsunamis. Mm-hmm. Um, the only problem with that is that a lot of these coastal lawmakers are basically, you know, they have expressed that they will not support that and will basically fight it. Um, if if Dogami, you know, the scientists and the... Uh, uh, the Earthquake Commission sort of moves forward with um, updating uh, the state's uh, maps that sort of lay out where are the regions that are that are vulnerable. Um, so in response to that pressure, they come up with what they call um, a grand bargain. And what uh, what is the grand bargain? Well, the grand bargain is, is essentially let's overturn the ban on construction in tsunami hazard zones and um in exchange you know we'll sort of say well you can you can build what you build there will be built to these standards that have been developed uh by a national engineering organization um and so that will sort of be the compromise uh that you know will uh placate sort of um resistance from the coastal caucus um, but will also provide a little bit of peace of mind uh, for people who are concerned about, you know, these communities who are in uh, a vulnerable area. Gotcha. This is Julia Oppenheimer. I'm speaking with Chris May from Street Roots about tsunami protections for Oregon's coastal communities. You tracked down dozens of current and former state lawmakers and asked them about uh, different pieces of the legislation they voted on two years ago. Why? Yeah, so this this goes back to sort of one of the the justifications for the current legislation, um, and sort of one of those selling points was, hey, you know, we we voted to overturn these construction bans two years ago, 
you know, the vast majority of state lawmakers all supported this. Um, so, you know, this isn't controversial. Um, but if, you know, if you look at that bill that passed, um, and, it, and it got a little bit of media attention at the time, but um, essentially you have, and this, this is fairly common in the state legislature, you sort of have a bill and it's kind of vague. It says, you know, study, study this, you know, study mining. Um, and then what will happen is you can sort of use this procedure where you pull all of that language out and you sort of copy and paste whatever you really want to sort of pass uh, into the bill, and then it moves forward. Um, but the sort of the title of the bill will stay the same. Mm-hmm. So in this case, we have a, a, a bill that um, was ostensibly about, you know, surface mining, um, but built into it was a repeal of, of the restriction on building critical uh, infrastructure in a tsunami hazard zone. Um, and so it, it passed pretty, pretty swiftly, um, you know, no, no public comments, um, no testimony provided, um, a little bit of debate between a, a handful of state lawmakers who, who said they were opposed to this on, um, you know, moral and ethical grounds uh, because of the risks that it posed. Um, but it, 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 you know, made its way to the governor's desk and was signed um, and it was passed uh, with, with, you know, not, not very much discussion on sort of the, the debate between do we want to build these things in these vulnerable areas at all or do we want to sort of pursue the path of, well, we'll we're going to build them, but we're going to try to make them as you know resilient as possible. Mm-hmm. So that conversation didn't really happen. Um, and I reached out to as many state lawmakers who voted on it that I could find. Um, you know, and I'd say about a fifth of a fifth of them aren't aren't in Salem anymore, so they're not even um, working in the legislature. And I just sort of asked them, you know, hey. Was it clear what this bill was about? Um, do you still stand by your vote on it? Um, and do you have any concerns about these standards that are now being proposed uh, for critical infrastructure that, that would be built um, in these vulnerable areas? And what did they say? Um, you know, honestly, I would say I got only got a handful of answers. Um, you know, one, one, Senator Jeff Golden you know, he, he sort of said, I, you know, I could have, I could have known more about this, uh, but I don't feel like anybody was pulling a fast one. Um, you know, there were some other lawmakers who, who felt that it, it wasn't, it wasn't clear what they were voting on. Um, and, you know, a lot of them sort of just said, you know, I, no comments. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that was two years ago. There's lots of bills that moved through. And so it, it wasn't clear that there was, I would say, a, a deep, and broad consensus about um, th- that particular path forward. Thanks to Chris for joining The Local. And thank you again for listening to The Local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.